Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. I was uh, uh, made aware yesterday, uh, for those of you who are listening into last week's show, an interview with uh, Andrew Lees, who wrote a wonderful book, Mentored by a Madman, about uh, the strange influence that uh, William Burroughs had on his own career as a Parkinson's researcher, a very interesting conversation about science and uh, word viruses and uh, medical practice and the uh, alternative medicine and such. But um, I was made aware that there was some very curious noises uh, on the uh, recording uh, that a friend of mine described. It, and it sounded like uh, Andrew was sort of walking around his house, doing the dishes, going to the bathroom. But because Andrew's face was on the uh, screen, like usually we cut off the video, but he left his video on and the, the, the otherwise the sound seemed fine. Uh, and so I could tell that he wasn't doing any of these things. So there was some kind of mysterious force that that leaned in and, and, uh, and interfered with the the signal. And I can only believe that it was uh, this, the ghost of William Burroughs. Because if you know Burroughs' work, not only did he write these crazy books and he made cut-up collages with texts, but he also made these wonderful uh, audio tapes where they would cut up things. And it sounded basically like a Burroughs cut-up. So just to let you know that paranormal things can happen even on this humble podcast. Uh, and I, I thought that the uh, that having a brief uh, chat here about alien uh, signals and uh, strange evocative radio uh, tapes would be appropriate for our conversation <laughs> today uh, with my old pal David Peskovitz. Um, I probably know him uh, if you're a, a fan of Boing Boing, which I've been since the very, very beginning, uh, ye old days of actual physical zines. Um, and he's been a co-editor there forever, as well as a, a futurist with the Institute uh, for the future. And recently he's been involved with a project that um, uh, when I first heard about, I was completely overjoyed and immediately went to uh, the Kickstarter and threw them some cash. Uh, but it turned out like I was not the only one doing this. And this project is the uh, 40th anniversary edition of the Voyager Golden Record, as most of you uh, probably know, when we sent out the Voyager probes uh, to go check out some of the outer planets and hurdle themselves into interstellar space. Uh, in addition to all of the various, uh, uh, you know, rationalist scientific technological gear, uh, these devices were fitted with uh, the golden record, the interstellar or interplanetary disk, uh, filled with uh, music, some uh, encoded analog encoded photographs, and greetings from. Uh, many Earth uh, speakers of different Earth uh, languages. And like a lot of people, when I read about this, you know, as a kid, I was just overwhelmed with this sort of romance of the idea of an LP being hurtled uh, into space. Um, and also, like a lot of people, I assumed one day I would be able to hear it. And there was never really an official release. We can talk more about it. Uh, and and David, uh, uh, along with some some pals, uh, uh, one a fellow from the local Amoeba Records, my, my favorite record store here in San Francisco in Los Angeles, uh, got together to put this uh, record out. And it's come out, and it was the most successful Kickstarter operation uh, for a record release ever. They raised over a million bucks. And it's a beautiful 
uh, package, you know, four LPs, a, a wonderful book that has all the photographs in it and a, a great essay by Tim Ferriss, who's a science writer who was involved in the original project and friends of Carl Sagan. Uh, so, and I've just been listening to it and it's a wonderful collection and not just in as a historical artifact, but just as a collection of world music, uh, it's a great thing. So I thought I'd bring David on and then later on we'll probably talk some more about uh, Boing Boing and other matters of uh, pop futurism and digital culture. Uh, but David, with no further ado, welcome to Expanding Mind. I am so happy to be here, Eric. I mean, this is... I mean, yeah, you and I have been friends for a long time since the uh, the uh, early cyberdelic days of the early 90s, 90s in the Bay Area. Um, but I've been a fan of of your show since you started it, so I'm I'm absolutely honored to to be on this with you. Well, and I'm really happy we have this uh, such a, a a nice concrete event to uh, to hang <laughs> it on. So it's always good to bring people on. You know, I like to just talk to my friends uh, online sometimes or on the show, but it's always nice to have that nice that nice juicy hook. And you must be feeling really happy now about the the great response of this record. And you know, it's it's a yeah. I don't need to tell you or any of our listeners that it's some it's some pretty grim times, man. You know, I, I, spend, <laughs> I spend a lot of my day yes. fighting uh, despair and and yet keeping up with thing, feeling needing to keep up with things and and. Um, Though it's in a way a little sad because you know you can listen to this recording and you, can, you there's in a lot of ways you just you realize how different it was in the 70s, space technology optimism the future very different kinds of stories um, but this record really uh, was quite moving uh, in, in a lot of ways and I know that that you um, you had that experience as well when you when you were uh, you know conceiving the project and then doing some of the early research that uh, was required to get get your hands on the masters and such. Yeah, I mean, it was, um, you know, I say this, it, the, the Voyager record when it went up in 1977, um, you know, it was, a, I say it was a gift from humanity to the cosmos, but it was also a gift to humanity. And, and I think that, and what we've seen is that it's as relevant now as it was in 77, perhaps even more so. Um, you know, a, as you said, I think that, you know, when Tim Daly, who, who's one of my partners on the project, who, who's a manager at, at Amoeba Music, and I um, first started on this, um, and, and you know, he kind of mentioned to me, oh, what if we, and I can tell you more about how we, we came to it, but um, it, you know, we didn't realize it was a 40th anniversary um, until we started looking into it. It just hadn't occurred to us, um, uh, but, you know, we realized that early on, of course, but you know, it's it's the perfect timing, really, for this, because, as you said, you know, I feel like people are really jonesing for a sense of hope um, about the future. And, and that really the, the Voyager record, um, both as a as a project, as an undertaking, um, but also the content of it embodies that sense of hope and possibility and, and optimism. And I think it it reflects you know what humanity is capable of when we're at our best yeah i i tell, i actually really agree with that that sentiment and i'm not i'm not really easy for that that sort of me uh, either as you as you know yeah. I'm, I'm like a you know uh, our mutual friend douglas rushkoff always likes when i used to say i'm a gleeful nihilist yeah but, yeah we're, but we just, have that crusty cyberpunk side but there's something <laughs> really uh 
You know, actually, I want to I want to hear the story when you you know, one of the things when you if I'm just I'm partly telling your story for you. But I know that when you contacted Tim Ferriss, who, again, was involved with the original project, one of the producers, uh, he gave you his blessing and said, yeah, you, you can do it. But you got to remaster the thing, which meant that you had to find the masters. But that was yeah. not that was not an easy uh Tell, yeah, talk about that. The, yeah, the, so the I mean, I, I mean, so you know, essentially, in short, the story was that you know, when I was seven and and the Voyager went up, um, and you're seven years old, and you hear that a group of people, um, you know, when you're you're a space nerd, uh, and you hear that a group of people attached a phonograph record to two space probes and launched them off into into the solar system on this grand tour. You know, it it sparks the imagination, and and it always stuck with me. Um, and then in the early nineties, when I went to study, um, uh, science journalism at UC Berkeley, I went to study under Tim Ferriss, who, you know, besides being a great editor at Rolling Stone magazine, um, he was the producer of the original Voyager record and, and one of Carl Sagan's dear friends. Um, and so I used to pepper him with questions about it. And then, um, you know, shopping at Amoeba Music all the time, uh, I became friendly with Tim Daly, who's a manager there, and he's a he reminds me of you in that he he's a, a sort of a, a you know amateur musicologist in a way um, of experimental and un, unusual music. And we talked about doing a project together, and he said, "Well, wouldn't it be great if we could do the Voyager record?" And I was like, "Wow, I always love the Voyager record. Could we do that?" And he said, "Well, it sounds like a Wright's nightmare, which it was." And um, you know, but neither of us could stop thinking about it. And Tim said, well, you know, the, the producer of the original record lives in San Francisco, the science journalist, Tim Ferriss. And I said, yeah, he's, he was my graduate, uh, uh, advisor at UC Berkeley. I'm going to, you know, we've kept in touch. I'm going to give him a call. So, uh, I had lunch with Tim Ferriss and it was, you know, a lovely lunch. And I mentioned the idea to him and he said, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. You should you should do that. And I said, oh, well, do you, do you want to partner with us? You know, just as you could be the you know executive producer or advisor. And he said, no, I've already done it. But but you should go ahead and do it. <laughs> so um, from there, we were off and running. But you're right. Um, Tim always said, you know, at the very beginning, he said, you got to remaster it from the original master tapes. And you know, Tim Daly and I were kind of like, well, that would be great, but I have no idea how we would do that or get access to that. And, you know, we can probably find, a, you know, commercial releases of some of the material. And NASA has posted the greetings um, and the sounds of Earth, which is that beautiful sound poem. It sounds almost like a piece of 70s avant-garde tape music of, of you know, uh, uh, insects and trains and a baby's cry and a kiss you know, collage together, but NASA has put that stuff on their own website. The sound quality is, is fairly poor. Um, but we figured we could sort of do the best we can. Um, so we started on the rights search, uh, working with the rights workshop, this great boutique, you know, rights clearance organization in the Bay area. Um, but every so often Tim Ferriss would check in with us and say, did you, did you get a hold of those masters yet? And, you know, we we're kind of like, oh man, what are we going to do here? Um, but we knew that, um, in 77, uh, CBS records, uh, kindly donated, um, studio time and, and other resources to actually master and make the original Voyager record. And Tim Ferriss told us that at last he knew, uh, those master tapes were, 
you know, probably in some storage or archive of CBS Records, which, of course, is now owned by Sony Music. Um, and with the help of some various introductions uh, through friends of ours, um, through our friend at Light in the Attic, which is a great label, um, and just through research online, we connected with Matt Kelly, who is the head archivist or, or a archivist at Sony Music. Um, amazing job. And, and he knew about the record. And, you know, honestly, he was a little skeptical that they could find it. Um, and it took some time. Uh, but eventually I got a phone call uh, from him and then followed up by an email. And he said, oh, look what's on my desk right now. And the master tapes were there. This took several months. Um, and those tapes had been stored in Iron Mountain, which is, you know, a, a former coal mine um, that's now an underground storage facility. And they had been sitting there for 40 years. Uh, and now they were sitting on uh, uh, Matt Kelly's desk in New York City. And, you know, the next thing I knew, um, we were on a plane, Tim Daly and I, and, and we met Tim Ferris and his son, Patrick Ferris, at Sony's historic Battery Studios. And there the tapes were. And just, I mean, even just the moment of seeing them and watching Tim Ferriss look at them and open up the boxes and see notes on legal pad. And he's like, wow, this is my handwriting, you know, notes on timing and sequence. Um, there was some material that, that Andrianne, uh, uh, Sagan's widow, who was the creative director of the record, um, had made. And it was just all in front of us. Um, and then the question was, you know, how are they going to sound? Because these are 40-year-old tapes, and as we know, there were certain kinds of tape that would flake and deteriorate very quickly over time. Um, uh, the, the amazing engineers at Battery Studios had to bake the tapes, which for people who don't know is literally putting reels of tapes in an oven, you know, very carefully um, to, to cook them so that the, the uh, magnetic material will stick on and not flake off long enough for you to play them to get a really high resolution digital transfer. And when they put those tapes on and, and Tim Ferriss and Tim Daly and I sat there and listened to the entire Voyager record, um, it, you know, we had listened to the material many times in various sources since we started the project and before, but it was just absolutely sublime. I mean, the, 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 uh, you know, uh, uh, Blind Willie Johnson and Solomon Island Panpipes and, you know, Louis Armstrong and, and Bach and Beethoven washing over us in the studio of these, from these tapes that hadn't been heard in 40 years was, was really deeply moving. I, I was surprised at how moved I really was. And, yeah, I mean, it's, you know. it's a, it's a funny one because I mean, I, I also just, you know, listened to the whole thing. I sat down and just, you know, poured through it. Uh, and I, you know, I have to say I was, I, I really, really did not expect to be as impressed as I was by the quality of the selection and the, re the particular recordings that were chosen. I mean, it, you know, maybe I wouldn't have done everything exactly the way they did, but as somebody who listens to a lot of international music, who listens to classical music, who listens to Indian music, listens to rock and roll, like I have really wide ranging tastes, a lot of these tracks, even some of the performers like the the uh, the Indian, the South Asian uh, vocalist was uh, uh, Kesarbi Kirkur. I don't know how to pronounce Kirkur, her name right, yes. but 
I have her records. I mean, I love her. I think she's she's one of my favorites. And so, like, it was actually kind of a, almost a little eerie for me how much like, yeah, that that's right. Johnny Johnny Be Good is the rock and roll track to put on this thing, and I'm glad they. They they you know shoehorn it in there because I know some, some people weren't necessarily happy about that. Yeah, that's same right. thing with the blind Willie Johnson and also even just some of the juxtapositions of the tracks. Like for me, the way that the the, the last two tracks are the blind Willie Johnson going into Beethoven string quartet, yeah. which is such a weird juxtaposition. Like it's so like quote unquote postmodern or whatever. It's so di such different kinds of music, different sets of associations, highbrow, a folk, whatever you want to do with it. But it really works. I mean, it really works emotionally and, and, uh, and particularly that blind Willie Johnson song, because, you know, one of the things you talk about in the essay and the Tim Ferriss talks about as well is, one of the weird decisions behind the whole project of the Golden Record was like, well, what story do we tell about Earth? Do we tell that in war and famine and misery and you know violence and all of that, or do we tell like a more kind of happy story? And it it's it's a more of a happy story, which is itself kind of an interesting decision we can talk about. But for me, like that blind willie johnson track which is so spooky i mean it's one of the most it's one of the most profound songs about mortality that exists in the entire archive as far as i'm concerned and so to yeah, have yeah. that in there it's this way of speaking to like the full truth of the human experience without like like reveling in the in the nightmarish sides of, the, of, of you know human civilization so it was very beautifully uh, curated i mean you can you know, whatever nitpick or if you want, but overall, I was I was really impressed with the kind of sense of, of like the representation of the globe. And, yeah, I mean that the the as Tim Daly, my partner, said, it's you know one of one of the earliest and certainly one of the best world music compilations uh, uh, before that term was really was really in use. And you know, I think that's a testament to. Um, you know, to Tim Ferriss and Annie Drianne and, and also Carl, who were the main folks um, who ultimately selected the music with, of course, a tremendous amount of input from the great Alan Lomax and also other musicologists who suggested material. But I mean, the, these what also struck me talking with Tim Ferriss about it is that, you know, they Tim and, and Annie and Carl were were music fans. Tim talked frequently to me about how Carl would come over long before this project to his apartment in New York City and they would sit and they would listen to records. And as Tim said, you know, that was a thing that people did then. They had really, you know, they had the best stereo they could afford and, you know, they, they had friends over and you would put on a record and you would spend time and, and listen to the music. And, and they were always sharing music with each other. Um, particularly Tim Ferriss was interested in uh, uh, classical um, and the blues and of course some you know some rock and roll as well you know that's a great story you mentioned about about Chuck Berry because I guess Alan Lomax um, had said that you know he thought that that music shouldn't be on the record because as he said it was it was adolescent music and Carl immediately responded well there are a lot of adolescents on earth as well <laughs> so, so but I think I think that's great I mean I think that you know that's why um, you know, w when it came time to select a rock and roll track they wanted to put on, um, Tim said that they chose that Chuck Berry track because, and that's the one he pushed for because it's sort of like the root of rock and roll. You know, they could have gone with, with Dylan or, or, 
you know, uh, uh, you know, the stones or, or these other artists, but they were trying to get back to the, to the essence. Yeah, no, and it, it came through really, really well. You know, I, I want to like put a, a sort of I'm trying to figure out exactly how to ask this, but you know, you you've been working in science and technology journalism, both as you know, you know, working for doing like straight uh, writing about science and technology, tr helping uh, ordinary folks understand things about nanotechnology and other future. Uh, sciences that are already impacting our lives are going to continue to do so. You've done the more pop culture side of, of uh, mm -hmm. s science technology geekery with Boing Boing and, and stuff like that. So you've been in this zone of like seeing the larger and, and, and reflecting the larger cultural meanings that science and technology have for us, you know, beyond their, their sort of just pure economic effects and yeah. things like that for a long time. Reflect a little bit about what this artifact says, you know, maybe about the 70s, about yeah, what so. what was a what why were they able to sort of have this? I mean, you can never you can never be a project like this now. Never. No way. No. So what no. was it about space technology? What was it about global consciousness? What was it about the hit with the, you know, the seventies as sort of this hedonistic, I don't, whatever, but if there's something really profoundly seventies about this project that I'd love to hear you riff on. I mean, in terms it, of it absolutely is. I mean, I think that, um, and a lot of people have tried or, or are trying to create various kinds of messages and, and artworks and things like that. But, you know, it's, it's never been a sort of, I, I, it's hard to imagine something as direct as we're making this record and we're bolting it to the outside of, of two space probes and launching it into space. It's really hard to imagine that happening now. And, I, and you know, I think that, um, <clears throat> and for me, you know, it fits perfectly in my longtime interests, which ultimately are at the intersection of, of, you know, science, technology, art and culture to spark the imagination um, and to, to, you know, instill a sense of curiosity. I mean, that's, that's what I'm seeking and, and that's what I try to convey in, in all the work that I do. Um, and I think this project is a, is a, you know, an artifact that, 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 you know, truly embodies that, that mindset. I mean, and in many ways it is, it is so seventies, you know, and, and, you know, I kept thinking sort of as it was this sort of, you know, utopian, vision but but Andy Drian pointed out to me that that it wasn't you know the perfect time then either I mean we were in the midst of the Cold War there was Nixon um you know it, it wasn't an ideal time but um there was excitement around you know this notion of of the future and futurism and our future in space um other things that were going on at the same time you know there was actual research going on funded research on, um, you know, uh, uh, Gerard O'Neill's space colonies. And, you know, there was a beautiful uh, uh, funded study by NASA uh, that resulted in those gorgeous uh, illustrations of, of domed habitats, um, you know, and, and rotating very 2001 space stations um, that you can find online. So there was a lot of that going on. There was this, this intersection almost between um, you know, I don't want to say hippie, but this sort of post hippie psychedelic kind of optimistic, um, uh, uh, futuristic, uh, 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 you know, uh, mindset. And, you know, it, 
it wasn't the you know the the idea of the of the you know this this ridiculous idea of the boring scientist in the lab coat you know i mean i mean carl sagan uh uh was a very hip guy you know i yeah. mean he was and and a, a lot of these people you know carl went to visit you know was trying to visit it with tim leary and and all of these people knew each other um uh you know carl and annie met at a party i as i understand it at nora efren's house i mean there was you know it, this kind of intellectual community of scientists and artists and literary people and and you know heads were <laughs> you know were all all mixing together and i yeah. think that's something that we saw in the 70s um it, that we haven't really seen as much uh uh since then in the in the sciences i dare say i mean you see it somewhat or we saw it i guess in the early 90s in the cyberdelic culture yeah i was going to say it seems like one of those things that that waxes and wanes. And are you probably familiar, familiar with uh, David Kaiser's book, How the Hippies Save Physics? I was, I was is, trying to remember the name exactly. Yeah, that book explores a lot of this. Yeah, and uh, one of the things he talks about there is how, if you look at the history of physics, there are these waves where the first wave, you know, the famous people Heisenberg and all those characters were. They were all kind of humanists and philosophers you know they thought philosophically they were interested in talking to people who were not you know scientists and then after the war it just became super pragmatic and all about engineering and not asking philosophical questions and then he kind of describes how in the 70s partly because of these freak physicists it kind of opens up again and i think carl sagan but you know his his television show the great you know mind-blowing cosmos and his own interests and even the way he dealt with um things he disagreed with you know stuff about the paranormal or things yes, that he was yes. you know he was still very much a rationalist but he wasn't like our skeptics today he he had a kind of he was still interested in the whole world and engaging these ideas and he recognized that there was something really important in people's more irrational hopes and fantasies that he was he wanted to kind of you know, engage. And so there was, it really did feel like there was kind of an overlap there, uh, you know, for, for I scientists. Think there, I think there was, I mean, I think that, that, sorry, I think that, you know, Cosmos that you bring that up and, and I remember watching it as a kid, but I, I watched it again a few years ago, um, in its entirety, the original Cosmos. And that's a deeply psychedelic show. Um, you know, it, it, the, the entire look and feel of it, um, you know, it's just a very head show. I mean, it's super smart and it's super rational and it, you can, you learn a ton from it, but it's also, you know, very visionary, very psychedelic. Um, and, you know, quite, and, and quite, you know, and, and both Carl and, and Annie, um, you know, are, we're very open about their marijuana use, um, you know, and, and using that to, 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 you know, augment their own creativity and thinking. Um, so as you said, there was this, there was this overlap, um, that, that, you know, was very prevalent at the time, I think, at least among some people. Yeah. Well, this, in a way, this gets us to the heart of, of your work too. I mean, what you've been doing in these different domains in journalism, working for, you know, university departments, working for the mm -hmm. Institute for the Future, working for Boing Boing. And as you said, is that there's something about the way in which while staying within a rationalist frame, a scientific frame, not getting into woo, not getting into whatever astrology or, you know, all these things, that's another conversation. There's still a way of experiencing 
you know, wonder, uh, imagination, da, da, da. And, you know, it's even kind of a cliche, oh, the wonder of the cosmos and all this kind of thing. But it's a it's a it's actually a very delicate space that needs to be cultivated. And I think that I think you'd probably agree with me that, you know, along with a lot of the other difficulties of our moment, one of these challenges is that science and technology and even space science is uh, it doesn't have that charge right. as much. Uh, and that there's something a little hollow even about the way that um, some science, scientific bodies, institutions, whatever, try to use the kind of wonder of the cosmos as a kind of like uh, uh, hype. But they don't, there's something kind of missing, I believe, in that, in the uh, uh, the sort of, where there once was more of a sense that science and technology brought us into greater intimacy with the larger, you know, bizarreness, weird wonderfulness of of uh, the world. And now it's all it's so much more about strife and cash and institutional politics. And maybe I'm being a little bit romantic that thinking that there, there that it was not not always thus. Uh, but as somebody who who's so keen on getting people excited on, 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 on addressing people's fears by also talking about possibilities about da, da, da. How, how do you see that whole role, you know, that whole uh, space in the culture really for that kind of um, wonder? Is it, is it, is it naive now? Is it, what, what, what can it do to help uh, us? You know, I, mean, I, you know, I think that <clears throat> that's one of the things that I, that I, you know, feel very fortunate about to have to be able to, you know, hang my hat at the Institute for the Future where I have for a dozen years. Um, You know, the Institute for the Future is a is a nonprofit in Palo Alto. We've been around for about 50 years. So, again, starting in, in, you know, 68, um, you know, at at that time. Um, And, you know, under Marina Gorbis as the executive director, she's always encouraged me and encouraged everyone um, to think about, uh, uh, futurism, um, and systematically thinking about the future, you know, not uh, doing it w- with rigor, but as a, as a hopeful, um, act that connects us to our humanity and as an empowering act. And, you know, how do you get people to think about the future? Well, you can get people to think about the future by scaring the hell out of them, um, that's not particularly fun and I'm not sure how hopeful or how helpful or hopeful that is. Um, you know, it's one way to, to engage people and you want people to understand the darker possibilities of things, but by conveying a sense of awe and wonder, um, when you're thinking about the future, I think that, that, you know, that, that really is a way to engage everyone in the conversation. I mean, you know, and so I, I try to think about the future through, um, you know, through the lens of art and also through the lens of magic. Um, magic is a way, I think, that can help us get our heads around, you know, the possibilities that were once considered by many to be impossible. So, you know, I oftentimes use use uh, uh, metaphors and magic, um, you know, and, and, and wonder to... to convey that sense of, of possibility and, and, you know, optimism in the work that I do there as well. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. There is something about, 
magic. I mean, we we had the, our mutual friend Ferdinando uh, Buscema, who's been yes. on the show as well. You know, he really taught me a lot about how to think about magical effects. I mean, we're talking stage magic here. Yes. Uh, that, you know, we, we normally think of it in a very lowbrow way that's sort of been kind of the, the de facto attitude that the entertainment industry and the history of magic as entertainment has sort of given us, which is like, oh, it's kind of, you know, a way for a guy to fool you and to sort of enjoy fooling you. And you kind of, you know, you have these sorts of experiences. But, but, but Ferdinando really taught me that there, how much profundity lies in that experience of that that moment of like absolute astonishment at something being happened, knowing that it, it did not happen through any supernatural means, and yet knowing just as strongly that you cannot figure it out and that there's something mysterious about the world that you haven't figured out, and that that's a very, you know, though sometimes disturbing, is a very uh, positive um way of it keeps you open it keeps you asking questions it keeps you recognizing that even if wonder wonder does not require something completely mysterious it just requires the right sort of mystery that's right i think that and and i mean i think that um you know uh, uh i'm much more interested really in you know and i know science it, it, science is super important to understand to understand our world of course but I, I'm personally more interested in, in um, uh, less interested in science as a way to answer questions and more as a way to ask questions, um, because I like the idea of the unknown, not that things are unknowable necessarily, um, although perhaps some things are. But I think the, the idea of the unknown is, is particularly attractive and 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 seductive and that's what i mean when i think about you know when i talk about you know thinking about things that were once impossible but that are becoming possible um through science and technology you know when we talk about magic um you know thinking about things like mind reading or levitation um or teleportation or you know any any of these kinds of of you know, phenomena that, that, you know, are historically in the realm of magic, but through technology become, uh, uh, something real in some way. And so I think if you can frame things through that lens of magic, um, even using some of the terminology and even borrowing from not just stage magic from, from, you know, occult magic, and I'm, I'm not a practitioner and I'm, I'm certainly no, no expert on it, although I like to read about it. Um, you know, I think that's a way to get people to get people engaged and to give that sense of of hope and possibility. Yeah, one of the things for me, the why I think that 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 gesture towards wonder uh, is really important, especially today, is that I think you know, in general, we've got if you make a distinction between science and technology here, which is you know a little bit fragile, but you know, if let's say science is about understanding the natural world, the world out there, the world that is, that is not uh, constructed by humans, and that technology uses some of those principles to actually make things that are of human design and human uses, but open us up and allow us to be in the world in a different way that one of the things that's happened is that we've become more and more and more techno technological and even the sciences are more technological so sure. for example my father is a uh, a um an oceanographer 
and he laments sometimes that the that his field is overwhelmingly now dominated by computer models. So because people are trying to figure out the weather, so they're trying to figure out global warming. So they're pouring all this data into these models, and then it's about algorithms and tweaking the algorithms. And and in that process, you have far far fewer people who are actually going out and measuring the planet. Whereas in his generation, you had all these people trying to figure out more robust ways to get actual data from the planet as, you know, as it is from from the outside, from outside the lab, outside of what we know. And there's something about the way that technology, digital technology, social networks, the Internet uh, have sort of created these feedback loops where people are able to sort of be within the environs of technology and sort of live their lives and think about the world from within these matrices. And they never really stop anymore to kind of lean out and go, oh my God, we're on a physical planet that's hurtling through deep space. And there are these animals and there's these things, you know, thousands and thousands of plants we don't know anything about. And I mean, there's that there's a whole exterior world that that is available for wonder, for even for horror. But it's there. It's part of our reality. But there's right. something about our contemporary conditions that pull people in to these looping networks. And so it's so important to like, you know, be able to open up portals so that people are drawn out again into the outside, into outside human completely human frameworks. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. And I, but, I, but I also think that um, at the same time as, you know, we're spending so much time, <clears throat> excuse me, in these mediated um, environments on, online in various forms, at the same time, um, we are developing, um, you know, amazing new instrumentation to understand our planet on a much deeper level at very high resolution. So if you think about, you know, tiny sensors um, that, that cost pennies or less than pennies each that, that can be, you know, sprinkled across a, 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 a you know, um, an eco, you know, a site of some kind or, or, or underwater, um, you know, and actually can create a very high resolution image and collect very high resolution data about the world. Um, you know, we have the opportunity and the technology to learn more about the processes underlying our, our planet and, and, you know, than, than, than we ever have before. I mean, I think that, and, and that's what, one of the other things I'm interested in and have been for a long time through my work at the Institute, um, is the future of, of, simulation. So, you know, as we collect more and more data about the world and about the processes underlying how our world works and have faster and better computer processing, um, you know, we can create very, very high resolution simulations of, of you know, reality um, to be able to explore our world at, at, at different levels. Um, you know, across different scales, both in terms of time and size, you know, being able to really understand, you know, the, the you know, how cells interact um, or, or, you know, the, the, you know, various, you know, invisible microscopic creatures, you know, teeming through our bodies. Um, yeah. And being able to explore those and understand and interact with them in new ways, I think, I That's hope, a really, opens yeah. the eyes, opens our eyes. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. You know, it's funny. I've I've reached this point where I'm, I'm actually really bored by 
almost all like uh, entertainment simulations. Like I just, yes. there's something in me that I just like, like if I go see a, a Hollywood film, when when you get to the CGI part, I just, I just don't care anymore. I just, somehow I just, I, <laughs> yeah. I just been ejected from that. But if you handed me an Oculus Rift and said, yeah, now you're going to be able to go inside of a really high quality, you know, simulation based on all of this micro data of the circulatory system or go inside your guts or go inside the vents at the bottom of the sea or go inside, you know, explore the, the, the moons of Jupiter. Like I'm there in a heartbeat. Like yeah. I want, you know, that is like, oh, and I'm, I just, I just, I really have a lot of, you know, hope for that because it does feel like uh, it's one of the things that people who are secular, people who are religious, people who are on one side, you know, whatever, that it's something that people can kind of unite around the yeah. excitement of the, the, this, this outside, you know, outside world. And, the, and this record speaks to that. That's, that's again, part of what's going on here is like, um, this, you know, this, this, uh, optimism about it, encountering not just the physical space, of course, because we're actually talking about encountering other beings. And that's one of the weird things about this record, too. It's all it's all based on a story, let's say, of, of the possibility of, you know, intelligent life elsewhere in the universe. And again, yeah. that's also something that's changed. And I'd love to hear you talk about how you see that changing. Like in the 70s, there was a, a way where, you know, the president of the United States could write about maybe encountering other uh, and I, was that unbelievable, unbelievable. President Carter wrote a beautiful, beautiful uh, statement um, that's encoded on the record as an image. You know, there's there's more than 100 images that were uh, uh, basically translated into audio signals, kind of like the way a fax machine works um, and stored as an audio signal on the record. And, and you know, the iconic cover, um, uh, you know, what most people associate with the Voyager record is actually the the jacket. You know, it's a, a uh, a gold aluminum, um, uh, uh, you know, plate that covers the record on the outside of the Voyager, and and engraved in it is this amazing diagram um, that that mostly Frank Drake came up with, um, who's a SETI pioneer, that explains where where the record came from. Um, it's a pulsar map, and then also these these you know schematics of how to play it how to play the the audio and how to convert the the image data back into into images and they spent a tremendous amount of time trying to figure out a way to uh explain this um without using you know english um for a potential extraterrestrial i mean that that you know thinking about about time and space i mean as tim ferris wrote in his essay the voyagers are on a a mission not just through space but also through time these things are designed and will probably last billions of years i mean that's an unbelievable it's almost an unconceivable amount of time um that they're going to be traveling among the stars and you know that's why it seems you know it maybe it's not likely that an extraterrestrial intelligence will will intercept the probes and and play the record but it's absolutely within the realm of possibility um you know, that's why when people say things like, well, they're never going to figure out how to play this record or, you know, what it actually is. But if you think about that, that, you know, this this hypothetical extraterrestrial intelligence is intelligent enough to be able to intercept this this probe, you know, basically to grab it, um, to find it and grab it, that then chances are they won't really have a hard time 
translating those grooves into an electrical signal. Um, yeah, it's true. I, I, I did want to read more about the, the technical. That was the only thing I missed from the from the package was I wanted a whole essay that was sort of about the thinking of how to represent how to play yeah. the record. <laughs> like, yeah. how? I mean, I know that you have that you have the panel that, that shows you the instruction, but it's almost like because that's one of the elements of the I don't want to say utopianism, but the hopefulness of this Absolutely. is just the belief that communication is possible. Um, and it, yeah. you know, it made me think about, uh, you know, on the other side of the fence, you know, there's some, some of my favorite novels by Stanislav Lem, the great yeah. Polish science fiction writer are about how can, it doesn't quite work. Like, even though you know that you're getting an intelligence, there's like one called his master's voice where they know they're getting intelligent signals they're, and they're able to break them down and they're, they're serious scientists, but there's like a certain point where they can never quite, jump over into meaning yeah. and it's such a fascinating point and so that you know but lem is more critical he's more a bit of a pessimist da, da, da. this is very optimistic not just in terms of representing a fairly happy story about earth but that just the idea that communication could happen and that communication is something that we would want to do and now you have people you know smart famous scientists saying oh let's 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 pipe down maybe yeah, we don't want them yeah. to hear us and like what a it's such a, a an about face it's really extraordinary yeah i mean that's it's funny i was on a a, <clears throat> a panel at nasa jet propulsion lab last week um with with some amazing people uh much smarter than i am including annie drianne um who, who was the creative director and someone brought that up um you know and and you know about should we not tell them we're here and then um there was an article uh, uh, you know, recently that Nadia Drake, who's an amazing science writer for National Geographic, she's the daughter of Frank Drake. She wrote about the Pulsar map um, on the record. And, you know, of course, all these people are saying, I can't believe we sent out a map of how to get here. And, you know, that's so risky. But but what Annie said at the panel really, really struck me. She said, so so basically the logic is with, with that mindset is that um there's an extraterrestrial intelligence that is so much more advanced than we are that they are actually able to travel these incredible distances to come to Earth, but yet they are so emotionally stunted that they would come here to eat us or to destroy us. Um, you know, and I and I. I, again, that provides me with a with a that, that's an optimistic and a hopeful statement. But it's also, you know, I think a very, very provocative one. Why should we think that somebody who's so advanced, um, you know, would would still be thinking about, you know, coming here to destroy us? Yeah, no, it's it really is a it's a reflector. It's a mirror. And again, that's what's so great about this. Uh, this coming on the 40th anniversary, uh, you know, year of the of the original probes and the 50th anniversary of, of Sputnik of entering yes. into this this kind of era. And it, it, it I, I'm glad there's a lot of attention on this record because not just because I think it's a cool thing and it should be listened to. But but it, it does kind of force us to sort of see like, well, where where is our mirror now? How, how what are we reflecting now? And, you know, it's it's sad that there is that we're, you know, we're dominated by fear now. And even those of us who fight against it, you know, we spend a lot of time, um, think, you know, being afraid of the future and, and thing and, and on this 
uh, or afraid of aliens or afraid of artificial intelligence or of course afraid of of global of global warming and all of these kinds of things and and so it's i think it's good to remi- remind us that we you don't have to have you don't have to have that attitude necessarily well i think i think also you know um i can't remember who said it from the original committee but uh voyager committee voyager record um but but you know they have been criticized of course of of you know, this is such an, uh, uh, a peaceful message, and they made a very conscious decision not to show, you know, uh, uh, you know, an atomic bomb explosion or, you know, famine or these other things that were very real and continue to be very real um, uh, uh, to this day. But I, I can't remember who said it. The, the, the point, you know, when you introduce yourself to somebody new, do you immediately say hi, you know? I'm David. Let me open my closet and show you all the skeletons that are <laughs> that are in there, or all the you know. Let me tell you about all the nasty stuff I've done or do. Um, I, that's just not how people, you know, reach out and try to make a new friend. Yeah. You know. So while while absolutely, it's a, it's a it's a, a, a somewhat a utopian vision. Um, the pictures, the music, all of the all of the all of the greetings. I, I don't think I'd particularly want uh, uh, you know to reflect of. You know, you know, Earth, Earth is so terrible, you know, stay the hell away. Well, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's also, I think, a, a part about the, the imagination of, of a planetary civilization. One of Jimmy Carter's lines in his wonderful message is, uh, we hope someday, having solved the problems we face, to join a community of galactic civilizations. And it's sort of like this... Um, and he also talks about how we human beings are still divided into nation states, but these states are rapidly becoming a single global civilization. Isn't that interesting? And, you know, yeah. and in a way, the 20th century was kind of defined by this movement towards globalism. In the early 20th century, yeah. people talked about a planetary religion. There was this idea of an ecumenical, like a, a drawing together of different faiths. And then you have the United Nations following into then world wars or the dark side of but there's all this move towards uh, globalization. And I think part of the, the, the difficulty of our moment now and part of the, the pessimism uh, and the fear is that that model, that sense that, that along with um, you know, increasing economic interdependence, increasing technological interdependence and, and uh, a stitching together of space and time through media, that, that there would come a sort of collective effervescence or a kind of um, drawing together that is sort of hard to find now. And, we ha- and we're in the opposite phase. We're going into growing nationalisms and fears about, uh, you know, digital technology and botnets from the other side of the planet, yeah. you know, con- undermining uh, democracy, et cetera, et cetera. We're, we're in the, the, the sort of shadow phase of globalization uh, and, and, and so, and it's kind of remarkable because I think part of the the positive images you're talking about aren't just about high, you know, not not leading with the the skeletons in your closet, but it's also that there was still at that time a sense that the process of globalization, for all its problems, and, and now we can recognize for a lot of its economic inequalities and aggression, and you know, we can have a whole cr- critical conversation about it. But there was still a sense that that process brought goods along with it that we could all recognize. And I think those are very hard to hard to articulate 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that it should. Yeah, I mean, we, it, it was a time when people felt that we were, or a lot of people felt we were moving in the right direction. I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and I and I think that you know, uh, I mean, people ask me all the time, well, how can you remain optimistic? And I and I'm not always optimistic, but I think it was, you know, it may have been Kevin Kelly or Stuart Brand who who talks about that that over the long term. The very long term, things are getting better, um, you know, and I and I cling to that, you know, you know, unless, of course, we destroy ourselves completely first. And, and I mean, maybe that's where I, I, I don't know, maybe that's where my nihilism comes in. I mean, if that's the case, you know, that's the case and we're gone. And, you know, the reality is that that, that record, those records are still going to be, you know, traveling among the stars you know, long after we're burnt to a crisp, either, you know, 10 years from now or, you know, 10,000 years from now. Yeah, it's it's a remarkable thing. You know, I, I've had a, a flash sometimes and it's almost like it was like a it's not quite a story, but it was like a science fiction scenario that I've, I've been think, I've been thinking about for years, which is the idea. You know, it's like of uh, that that what is valuable about it. like if you imagine that there are, are you know many civilizations have come and gone in the in the universe or even just in our galaxy um but that they have a kind of lifespan and that it's actually quite likely for them to collapse uh yeah. which is you know something a lot of people have talked about and i think i mean in a non-pessimistic way i think there's a lot of reasons to to believe that whether it's because of developing, you know, terrible weapons or even for developing uh, narcissistic uh, social media where you just get kind of stuck in these sort of virtual cul-de-sacs and people kind of stop communicating, which is another argument people make about why don't we see more civilizations. So, so, but what this led me to is imagining like that of this kind of these alien anthropologists and their job is to just like cruise the universe, trying to find these civilizations, recognizing that most of them won't, won't make it. Um, and then when they arrive, what do they care about? Do they care about their economic systems? Do they care about uh, their the particular form of uh, in, con, internal combustion engines they may right. make or whatever? No, they want the, they want the art, you know, yeah. they want like, because Art is so contingent, so it's not going to be the same. If you have, a, if we have an Earth two, and you have all the same initial conditions, yeah, they, their technology might be sort of different, maybe even quite different, but their culture is going to be totally different, you know. Yeah. And there's something, even just the diversity of the Earth is just extraordinary, you know, a diversity that we are now, you know, undermining along with the diversity of languages, et cetera, et cetera. But that that's the juicy stuff is is like. All of that richness, all of that unexpectedness, the the of sounds and you know poets and uh, metaphors and all that kind of that that's really what's most valuable. And so, there's something a deeply poetic about the Voyager. The fact those records right now are doing that. There is this kind of gesture of yeah, this was us too, yes. Beethoven and pan pipes and you know uh blues music and stuff that's right I mean, because the, because the the voyager probe itself um you know it's pure technology and pure science right um you know as tim <laughs> tim ferris said the the uh our, the the voyager record is really the com- you know is the complete non-scientific part of the voyager mission um i think there is some science behind it and frank drake would probably say the same but but you know it, 
it's really the the other side. It is that side that you're talking about. Here's this pure technological probe that's going out there and doing science, and attached to it is a piece of culture. Um, you know, and I and I w when I first had a conversation, I think with with Annie Drianne about about our project, um, you know, and I was a little bit hesitant to say this, but I said that I thought I, I thought of the Voyager record as this. Uh, a stunning piece of conceptual art and you know she agreed with me um which which, which you know of course made me feel good but i but you know I, they, they weren't under some pretense here when they made this thing that you know what they were doing was was some you know great scientific endeavor um they were you know trying to to represent culture and and create a piece of a piece of art. I mean, when, when people asked Tim Ferriss, what were your guidelines when you were selecting the music? And he said, well, you know, we wanted to represent many different cultures, not just the one that produced the, the Voyager probe. But the second was we wanted to make a good record. And, you know, when I was sitting in Battery Studios with, with Tim Daly and, and we heard the sounds of Earth, um, you know, echoing around the room and, and we heard Beethoven and Chuck Berry and Blind Willie um, you know, when that was over and the final strains of, of you know, Beethoven faded out, um, Tim looked over to me and he said, yeah, it's a it's a good record, right? I said, yeah, yeah, that's that, it's a good record. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, we're going to have to uh, wrap it up there. That's a, a perfect ending there, David. So uh, we didn't end up talking about Boing Boing. But we'll, we'll we'll do it some other time. Uh, so uh, thanks so much for for joining us on, on Expanding you. Mind. That's great. All right. That was Dave Peskovitz. And of course, we're talking about the uh, interstellar Voyager Golden Record 40th anniversary edition. And uh, it's a big fancy box. Check it out and uh, uh, you'll, you'll see David's name on Boy Boy. And until next week, keep your minds open.